just want to say a couple of things here before I turn it over to Dr. Cover, and that is that we want everyone to have a have a uh, manual. Um, they cost a little bit to produce, and, and we posted that cost back there, but we're not going to uh, insist people pay if, if they're, especially if they're a guest of our church. Um, you can help us to make sure everybody has a manual. And um, the um, list of Dr. Kober's materials is, is a, a sheet like this that's back there on the table as well. If, if you would like any of those, you can just let him know and, and uh, he'd be happy to uh, send those back once he gets home. And the, of course, the brochures that we have to pass out as an invitation to other people to, to join us are back there as well. Um, no stranger to our midst, uh, Dr. Kober, many here have spent some extensive time with Dr. Kober on one tour or another, and uh, so it's a pleasure to have Dr. Kober be with us for this prophecy conference. Dr. Kober, I'm going to just turn it over to you. Thank you very much. It's my privilege to be back with you folks. I always enjoy being here and fellowshipping with the pastor's wife and with the rest of you folks. Um, I'm delighted to see the snow. It's not snowing yet in Iowa, but uh, I'm sure it'll start sometime soon, though I'm told we don't even have Indian summer yet in Iowa, so we expect some warmer weather yet. Um, pa your pastor asked me to speak on prophecy, which I'm glad to do. Prophecy, as you know, is a subdivision of systematic theology. When I was at Faith Baptist Bible College, I was privileged to head the theology department, and I taught the uh, students the major doctrines. They had two years of doctrines, and we always ended up with last things. And there is so much material in the Bible on prophecy that we always ran out of time. Now, before I studied at Dallas Seminary, I took doctoral studies in Germany. And I had, and that school I knew was New, New Orthodox. They were not very sound in the faith, but I knew that, but I wanted to see what they were teaching. And so um, I took systematic theology there. And I had a professor who taught four semester hours, four times a week, um, one semester and the second semester. And he had a notebook, so he was not, you know, speaking extemporaneously. But he spent the last 20 minutes of the last class hour on prophecy. That's all these liberal pastors or liberal professors can do. For the believer, the, the future is nothing but glorious. I have a whole message. Uh, the best is yet to come. Because when you talk about the future, you're talking about the glorious anticipation of the Lord's coming. And I want to begin, as you know, with the rapture of the church. If you have your manuals and open them to page two, we have an outline. And I'm not going to stick that closely to the outline, but Turn with me in your Bibles to John 14. There are two major passages I'd like to cover today dealing with the rapture. 
There are other passages, but we need to limit ourselves. It's a well-known passage, but I hope familiarity does not breed contempt because we know the passage, and yet it always uh, issues forth blessings to the believer who um, engages in the study of that marvelous passage. Christ is in the upper room the night before he is crucified, and the disciples have no idea what's going on. Uh, they knew something dreadful was going to happen. He had told them for the last six months since up in Caesarea Philippi that they must go to Jerusalem, that he would suffer, he would die, he'd be resurrected, and they didn't believe it. They did not believe that. And all, all, the way, all the, along the way, he told them, I'm going to Jerusalem, this is what's going to happen. And in Mark's gospel, um, no, in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 9, it says, they didn't understand, they didn't know what he was talking about, and they didn't ask him either. But he's telling them here, whether you understand things about the future, whether you know what's going to happen in the future. The most important thing is this. Let your heart be troubled. You believe in God. That's good, but that's not good enough. You believe in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. Did he keep that promise? Well, he went, right? And presumably, that's what he's doing now. And since I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again. Has he done that? No, he hasn't been back yet. And receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And whither I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas, doubting Thomas, said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, and how can we know the way? And then comes that passage you've all memorized, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. I'm quoting Martin Luther on page two. And Martin Luther said, if he were not true God, if Jesus Christ were not true God with the Father, this faith would be false and idolatrous. It's good to believe in God, but if you believe in Jesus Christ as your personal savior, then the future is settled whether you understand things about the future or not. Your future is settled with God. Now, many Christians don't have a very clear understanding of the future. I spoke in a church in New England some time ago, and before I came, the pastor, Northfield, Massachusetts, to be precise, the pastor said, I'm new, fairly new in this congregation, and when I arrived, I asked them, how many of you could think your way through some of the major events of the future? And you said, two of them. Two people raised their hands. And he had me do a prophecy series. I hope there were a few more people at the end of, the, uh, uh, of our series. But I'd like you to go to page seven with me, if you want to, and put down what awaits you as a believer in the future. We're going to cover much of that in our series. Right now, what are we doing? We expect the Lord to return, right? When will he return? Bible doesn't say. Apparently, when the heavenly city, our home, is finished, 
readiness to be prepared for the Savior. And then the following event, and that may happen today, it may happen sometime in the future, we have no way of knowing when. The date has been set by God in heaven. The rapture, at which time the dead are going to be raised, we'll talk about that this morning, and the living will be translated. And then the Lord will keep his promise to take us to the Father's house. There are two major events that will take place in the Father's house for the believer. This is rewards, number three, if you want to write that down. And then number four, the rejoicing at the marriage of the Lamb. While there's a time of unprecedented tribulation on earth, there's a time of wonderful celebration in heaven. So the believer is raptured. We might enter into the presence of God if we, of course, die before then. But uh, if we live, if we are that generation that sees the rapture, then, of course, we will be uh, gloriously in his presence without having to taste death. After the end, end of the tribulation, Jesus Christ comes back with us, and we'll be talking about the second advent tomorrow. This is an event that is, has earth-shaking repercussions because all of the armies of the world will be in Jerusalem at that time and in northern Israel fighting, and Jesus Christ will come back. This is Revelation 19, verse 11, and you and I are on horses behind him, Revelation 19, verse 14, and we, we don't have a single weapon in our hands, but according to the Revelation passage, Christ speaks a word of judgment, and they all drop dead. So we are returning with Christ, and he is going to be seated on the throne of his glory in Jerusalem. For the next 1,000 years, we are privileged to rule with him. And then after the millennium, after the 1,000-year kingdom, the heavenly Jerusalem will settle from, come from heaven to this earth. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth, and that will be our home for all eternity. So that is the general outline for the future of the believer. And there's nothing negative about any of those. We'll talk about the judgment seat in the morning service, but many people have a negative view of that, but even that is a time of triumph. I have various people that are trying to guess when the rapture will be or when the earth will end. Stephen Hawkins said the earth is going to be destroyed by 2600. We suggest that we all go to, to Mars. Our president last night in one of his uh, rallies said he wants to have an American astronaut on, on Mars. I'm not sure we need to go there, but uh, uh, that's his business. But at any rate, extinction, either 2600 or 2100. To get to Mars, Steve Hawkins said, you need to write on a light ray. So with the speed of light, how that is done, he didn't explain. He died before he could explain. Now, this 
legislator from the state of New York, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, says the world is going to end within 12 years. Some are even more precise. There's a group of South Koreans that suggested the rapture would occur in a mass um, suicide was feared when it didn't happen, and it didn't happen. There was no mass suicide. But those people were at least honest, and they dissolved their church. They said, we've been giving the false message to people about predicting the rapture for the date would be 1992-82. Um, well, when is Christ going to come back again? Casey, you know the the guy who told me the world would end August 30th, yeah, Joe. Today he tells me he's been moved up to the, uh, November 4th. How come? He said he changed religions. So depends whom you follow. Jack Van Empey and um, all sorts of other people have made predictions. And uh, Salem Kirpin. Uh, and none of those predictions have come true. So. Herbert W. Armstrong, remember him? Garner Ted on the radio? He said by 1975, Germany would conquer America. Didn't happen. Why? Because the Bible talks about the Assyrians, and the Assyrians had the swastika as a symbol, so that must mean the Germans. A bizarre way of interpreting. Two main passages of the rapture. In John 14, as you can see on page 1, we have a solemn promise of the rapture, of Christ's return, and then 1 Thessalonians 4, our other passage, we have a splendid picture. You probably remember from what your pastor ha pastors have been teaching in the past that the promise is a multiple promise. In my father's house are many mansions, that, need, that word needs a little explanation because we think of, you know, mansions like the rich people in your community who live out in a nice lake and all this. But actually, the, the word mansion is an old English word. And the, the, the Greek word, which is translated here, means living spaces. We have a picture of one of those father's houses here. It means... People lived together in a wealthy Jewish man's compound. He would have a property, and then he would have a compound, and he would live in one section of the house, and then his eldest son would get married and would live in the next section, his next eldest son. So they would live all together in peace and harmony, hopefully, and if a daughter got married, of course, she'd move in with her uh, father-in-law, with her husband. There'd be room for the animals and room for provisions. And what Christ is going to, uh, trying to convey here is the place where he's going and building for us right now, he's been working on it for a long time, is going to be a place where everybody is going to be together in perfect peace and harmony. It speaks of intimacy being together in harmony. What the Father's house really looks like, we don't find out. If you turn to page 3, we don't find out till we get to Revelation chapter 21 and to 22, 5. It's a majestic city. 
that city that descends from heaven at the end of the millennial kingdom on the new earth. Some say the city is a sphere. Some make it a cube. Uh, Larkin in his book, I think he's probably correct, makes a pyramid. And the city is described in great detail. It's a city that is of almost unimaginable proportions because we read in verse 16 that the length and the breadth and the height are the same and the dimensions are, as you may well remember, about 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles by 1,500 miles. Lots of room for all of us, right? Now, it's, it's hard to envision a, a city like that. If you take a map of the United States and the city would plop down on the United States, how much of the continental United States would it, would it cover? Well, do you know where Iowa is located on this map? Are you conversant in geography? They aren't out in New England and elsewhere. They say, yeah, I have an aunt who lives in Idaho. Well, no, I'm in Iowa. I live in Iowa. Oh, you have good potatoes. No, no, that's Idaho. I have an aunt in Cincinnati. No, that's Ohio. Well, Iowa is located right here, right? If the western wall of that city were right here, 1,500 miles, how far would the eastern wall be? Any truck drivers here who've been crossing the United States? Right to the coast, right off the Massachusetts coast. You pull the city just a little farther to the west and it would cover half the continental United States. We're not talking about some gossamer thing that'll never happen that it's going to be an actual city. And the Lord Jesus Christ is building that for us now. Now, who's going to live in that city? The city is for us, for those of us who are born again between the day of Pentecost and the rapture. But I don't mind sharing it with other individuals, right? Because according to God's word, Hebrews chapter 12 gives us the information. The triune God will live in it. God will actually leave in his manifest presence the third heaven and come to earth. It's not that we are going to live all eternity with God in heaven. It's that God is going to live with us. Of course, he's omnipresent, but there's such a thing as a manifest presence. And in Revelation 21, in the opening verses, you have the amazing statement, uh, behold, the dwelling place of God is with men. So the triune God is going to be there, the judge of all, Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, an innumerable company of angels, and the church of Jesus Christ is there, the bride, and all the Old Testament saints Okay, if we had time, we would figure out how many angels there are. There's a, in, in Revelation 5, there's a statement. If you take it 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, if you take that literally, you have 404 million angels. These are the holy angels glorifying God in heaven. 
one-third of the angels fell with Satan. So if that's two-thirds, one-third would be 202 million, which means originally you had 606 million angels, one-third fell with Satan. It may be more than that. Maybe that number is just indicating a vast amount. Okay, do you think we have enough room with all these angels there, 404 million angels are there? How much room do angels take up? They'd all fit in the tip of this pen because they don't take up, a, they're spirit beings. Don't ask me how that works, but we, we won't be crowded. And that's going to be our home. We don't know exactly what it looks like, whether they're individual places, like we think of houses or mansions. But uh, I like Benes the Menace, who in a very lovely summer day lies in a pasture and talks to his friend Joey and says, if it's this good here, I wonder what it's like in heaven on a day like today. There's been some glorious days on this earth, but I don't think we can imagine at all how wonderful heaven will be. Another time, Joey waxes theological. He says, I wonder what heaven is like. And Dennis says, well, it probably looks like a toy shop, sounds like a carousel, and smells like a belly. <laughs> My son would have said, like Pizza Hut. He, for a period of time, he really loved pizza. I, I have, we have no way of imagining how beautiful heaven would be. If you think of the most ideal place on this earth, some of you have traveled widely, so you have several favorite spots. Even those beautiful places on earth uh, are, will pale in, in comparison to our heavenly home. This is one of my favorite places, the Neuschwanstein Castle in Germany. And uh, it's just a gorgeous place. Uh, in the background are the German and the Austrian Alps. There's a place that I have frequently visited in the Alps of Switzerland. Rosenlaui, it's called. Okay, that is gorgeous. In my mind, that is the ideal place on this planet. But um, I spoke in Argentina a year ago. And of course, I had to get a beautiful place of Argentina in the picture. So I used their waterfall in the northeast of the country. But no matter how beautiful places are on this planet, and, and Montana is, is wonderful. My family and I spent a vacation out here when the kids were young. We went into Canada and made a, a round trip, just had a wonderful time. But the promise of the Savior is he is going to prepare a place for us. And as somebody has said, if it only took him six days to create the world, and it's taken him almost 2,000 years to prepare our eternal home, what a beautiful, beautiful place that must be. There's another passage of scripture that we want to spend some time on. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 20 years after Christ revealed the rapture, and that's the first reference in the Bible in John 14 to that glorious event totally unknown in the Old Testament. In 1 Thessalonians 4, the Apostle Paul, Paul deals with the three problems that the Thessalonians had. The first is the problem of immorality. 
these Thessalonians were saved out of a very pagan culture. And I'm starting on page four of our outlines. They needed to know, as Paul said, that they ought to possess their body in honor, that they should abstain from every type of sexual looseness. Okay? Seneca, the Roman statesman, said, not only is chastity a rarity in the Roman Empire, it doesn't exist. So many of these believers had lived a lurid lifestyle. Just think of St. Augustine, maybe you know something about his history. But God gloriously saved them, and they needed to leave that lifestyle behind. And then in verses 9 through 12, the Apostle Paul deals with a second problem. And the second problem is that, as you can see at the bottom of page 4, the problem of indolence. Some believers of Thessalonica apparently had given up their means of livelihood. Why? Because they thought the Lord was coming back, if not next week, at least next month. Having forgotten the Lord's admonition in Luke 19, 13, to occupy till I come. They had become dependent on, upon other believers. Not just other believers, but at the end of verse 12, unbelievers. Walk to the, honestly toward them that are without, without the faith. So these believers, and the idea was a good one. The Lord is coming back soon. At, the, at least they were imminently expecting him. But they said, why keep working? We'll just have Bible studies or whatever they did. And then a week went by, a month went by, half a year went by, and the Lord hadn't come back. And they had given up their jobs. They had probably divested themselves of most of the possessions. And they were sponging of other believers and unbelievers. I'm quoting Martin Luther here who once said, if I knew the Lord were coming back tomorrow, I would plant an apple tree today. Why that? The believer needs to live as if the Lord were coming back today. He needs to work as if he were not coming back for another 100 years. We're supposed to be active till he comes, and we don't know when it is that he comes. The third problem, I'm on page five, is the problem of ignorance. These believers were ignorant of the destiny of their departed loved ones. And you have this scripture passage uh, represent on page nine, um, indicating the problem they had. So in verse 13, you have the problem. But I would not have you ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep, that you sorrow not even as others which have no hope. The word sleep, which is used here, and again twice in the passage, those which sleep in Jesus, and then they prevent them who are asleep, is a reference not to the souls and spirits of departed individuals, but it is used metaphorically of the body of the believer. These Christians at Thessalonica had no idea what their brothers, their sisters, their moms, their dads were doing when they passed away. Would they miss out on the rapture? Would they miss out on the, the blessings of the millennial kingdom? 
You see, when Paul said, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, he's not faulting them without justification. He taught them that when he was with them for three weeks at one time. But they were ignorant because they weren't listening. They didn't have a manual like we have. They didn't take notes. They didn't record any that. Somebody should have remembered and said, look, uh, didn't Paul say that when our loved ones departed, they'd be immediately in the presence of the Lord? Isn't that what he said? Nobody seemed to know. I'm glad of their ignorance because it means that you and I have a detailed revelation of what's going to happen. The word sleep then is a reference to those who have died in the Lord Jesus Christ. I mentioned in our outline that we have in the English language a real interesting term for the place where we bury the dead. You didn't know you used two Greek words when you used the word cemetery because the word cemetery is based on koime, the word sleep, and terion, the place of sleep. What a beautiful description, especially when believers are buried. Their bodies sleep, right? And then what? Their souls and spirits are where? They're with the Lord. Because the next verse said, if we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, God will bring them with him. So where are the dead in Christ? They're with the Lord. How about their bodies? They're asleep. I think many Christians really don't have a clear idea what happens at the moment of death. And I have a somewhere in our outline, page eight, I have a diagram showing what we need to know about the believer and the future. When you and I pass from this life and the older one gets, the more funerals one visits and heaven becomes all the more precious when dear friends depart to glory. But when the believer dies, his body is placed in the grave and that is what is sleeping. The soul and the spirit go immediately to the presence of the Lord. Doesn't take any time. Remember, absent from the body, purgatory, no. Absent from the body, this long tunnel embraced by light, no. Absent from the body. What happened to Lazarus in Luke chapter 16? That's not a parable, that is an actual historic account. Christ never uses a personal name in a parable. And he speaks of a historical person, right? Speaks of Abraham and a person by the name of Lazarus. And when Lazarus dies, what happens? The angels carried him to Abraham's bosom. What's that? That's paradise. Where's paradise now? It is with God in heaven, the third heaven. So when a believer dies, what happens? The angels are there. I don't know if they are our guardian angel or angel or some other angel, but they bear us to heaven. And how long does that take? Just like that, just like that. So while death is something we dread because we have in our bodies a self-preservation principle, we want to stay alive, but for the believer, death is just an instantaneous transfer to a place infinitely glorious. 
when an unbeliever dies, the experience is the same. The material and immaterial separate. That's what death is, separation. The immaterial part of the unbeliever goes to, we call it hell or Gehenna, a place of torment which apparently is somewhere in this earth and the body is placed in the grave. And the scripture passage for the unbeliever is, as it is appointed unto men once to die, and after that, a second chance. Uh -uh. No second chance. Where we spend eternity is a decision we make in this life. And if there has been a time in your life and mine when we've personally trusted in Christ as Savior, in that very moment, we became eternally children of God. That's God's promise, and God cannot lie. Remember Christ said, come unto me, all you who, who labor and heavily, I'll give you rest. That's true for unbelievers. It's also true for believers. If we believe, we are saved. Believe that Christ died for our sins. So we don't have to fear a thing. The sequence of events then, at the time of the rapture, is given in this passage. Permit me to put that back on. First Thessalonians chapter 4, we have the problem in verse 13. We have the preview in verse 14. What's going to happen to them? Well, Christ died and rose again. Our saints who are in glory, if they die like Christ, they died in Christ, will be raised again. For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not have any advantage of them that are asleep. So we have the promise in verse 15, the promise that the dead in Christ, when Christ comes back, shall be raised. Their bodies, but where are they again? They're in heaven. From the split second of death, they're in glory. Sometimes you wonder, and people ask me if they have a time of questions, and we'll probably have questions Monday night. We'll have some time for questions and Tuesday night. But do the saints in heaven know what's going on on earth? And I mention in my outline the fact that it's possible that if something enhances the joys of heaven, we will know. In Luke 15, 10, we read that there's joy in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. It doesn't say there's joy among the angels, but in the presence of the angels. And who's in the presence of the angels? The saints are, right? And if the, if the angels are in heaven are especially joyful, don't you think some saint will ask them, why are you throwing a Coke party today? Or why are you so unusually happy? And the angel will say, why, little Johnny just got safe down on earth in Columbia Falls. And this grandmother in heaven will fold her hands and she'll say, that's my grandson for whom I've been praying all these years. I'm not saying that is gospel truth, 
because we cannot be dogmatic about that, but if something enhances the joy of heaven, maybe God will let us know. When a Christian young couple gets married, or when they have a little child, or when somebody does a magnificent work for the Lord, that may be revealed. We don't know. But anything that distracts from the joys of heaven, I think God wisely keeps it from them. So then, beginning in verse 16, we have a picture of the Lord's return. And on page 10, I have a diagram, and I'll help you fill in the points because we're going through the passage to see how the sequence of the rapture events take place. Let me just put a transparency on top. So the Lord returns, okay? That's the first thing, when the rapture occurs. Either today, I hope it's till after dinner, I'm expecting a good dinner at, at uh, the pastor's home. But uh, the Lord returns, and you won't miss it, will you? Uh, what kind of sound is there? Is that the shout, which literally means a command? the voice of the archangel, probably a summons. We don't know what the archangel is doing, but where are we meeting? We are meeting in the clouds, okay? Christ comes back and the saints go up. In the, and what's in the clouds? That's Satan's domain. Until the middle of the tribulation period, he's the prince of the power of the air. He's the god of this age. And so maybe the shout of the angel is to summon the angelic host to form a, a, a protective cordon around the believers coming from heaven and coming from the earth. We don't know. And the trump of God. In the Old Testament, the trumpet was blown primarily in time of war for worship and a time of war. Maybe it's both. Maybe the trumpet is a sound for us. Come and worship the Savior whom you served, but you've never known, or personally, in a, in a person-to-person -person way, come and, and meet the Savior. And it may be a, a signal to the angels to make war against Satan and his host. Not till the middle of the tribulation period is he cast out of heaven, Revelation chapter 12. So Jesus Christ comes back and no matter where you are and what you're doing at the time of the rapture, um, you'll hear the summons. When I came to the United States, I lived with my relatives in Springfield, Massachusetts. And part of the time I lived with a family that lived very close to Chicopee Falls. And if you know anything about the Air Force, there's a Westover Air Force base in Chicopee Falls and we would have the planes come right over their house, and the loudest planes, I remember the B-50, B-30, what is this, B-36s, B-52s, B-56s, but the loudest plane was a KC-135 jet tanker. These are like the Boeing 707s converted into jet tankers that refuel airplanes all around the world. And when they were heavily loaded down with this fuel and took off, and took off over that house, 
the whole house shook, and for two minutes you were practically dead. Supposing the rapture occurred at that moment, and you're in the shower at that moment, and when you're in the shower, you're supposed to sing at the top of your lungs. And the kids are playing and noisy in the living room. And the television is turned all the way up. And that plane is flying over. Supposing the rapture occurs at that moment, you'll still hear the summons. You'll not be left behind. Okay, the dead in Christ... Their bodies, remember their souls and spirits are coming with the Lord. Their bodies will be resurrected before the living are translated. Somebody says, of course they have to be resurrected first. They need a six-foot head start. I'm not sure that's the real reason, but uh, it's the most likely one. When I went to Bible college in New York State, I did housework for a couple ladies. They were wonderful, godly women, sisters, retired school teachers, typical old maids, very particular, and uh, I didn't mind working for them. I was earning some money. I'd painted their house a couple times while I had my five-year program at that Bible college. Uh, they got along with each other and with me famously, except once a year. Once a year, we had to go to the cemetery where they, in well-advanced plans had the grave sites prepared. And we had to rake the leaves of their grave site and uh, make sure that the place was suitable to contain or the, to retain their earthly remains. And they had the gravestone already, but they hadn't the names in there yet, of course. And they were always fighting whose grave belonged to whom because they were on the side of a hill. And Ella said, that's my grave, and this is Laura's. Laura, that's your grave. And Laura said, no, that's my grave. That is your grave. Ella was the older, and she kept always, she, it always came down to, I'm older, and I deserve to be first in the presence of the Lord. I will have a little head start because I'm a little higher on that hill. I tried to tell them that it didn't matter. They'd be equally there. I don't know how all the saints are going to be there together, but it's going to be a glorious reunion. Now, somebody will say the word rapture is not in the Bible, and Regrettably, there are a number of people that reject the doctrine of the pre-trip rapture because they say, we don't find that word in the Bible. Well, you don't find the word Trinity in the Bible, and yet the Bible clearly teaches that within the Godhead, there are three divine beings, the same in essence and different in subsistence. But the word rapture, I indicate that in our notes, is based on the Latin rapio, and it means to cease or to snatch to transport quickly from one place to another. In, in 1 Corinthians 15, we read how long that takes. How long? No time at all. In a moment, right? In the twinkling of an eye. Okay. Um, so, I continue to use the word rapture. If you use the word seizure, people might think you have a medical problem. You're talking about a medical problem. But that's what it means to 
transport from here to where? To meet the Lord in the air. And then the next event, our Sunday morning topic, is rewards at the judgment seat of Christ and rejoicing at the marriage of the Lamb. The two events in heaven while there's a time of tribulation on earth. Now notice how the passage ends. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The rapture is a comforting hope, and we ought to be we ought to remember that for the believer, it is the signal to be removed from this earth before the tribulation begins. Now, unfortunately, there are many Christians, and, and they seem to be increasing in number, who espouse a post-tribulational rapture. And there are lots of individuals, if you go on the internet and Google the word rapture, most of the articles against our position. If the Bible were that ambiguous, I'd say, well, maybe they have a point. But the Bible is very clear. If we were to worry about the tribulation, Paul would have said, therefore, scare you one another with these words. But the rapture is a comforting hope. Let me explain to you something, and I think, the, I think we'll be able to understand that. In John 14, Christ makes a promise, right? The promise is, I'll go. He kept that promise, right? What else? I'm preparing a place. Presumably, that's what he's doing. And then what? I'll come again. He'll keep that promise. And then what's the next promise? I'll take you to myself that where I am, where is he? In heaven, right? Okay. Our post-trip friends, R.C. Sproul and a lot of other fine theologians, they're way off in the end time event. Supposing we have to go through the rapture. First Thessalonians 4 has to take place right here, right? We have to be caught up. Somehow that has to happen, right? Okay, and then what? We come right back with Christ. Revelation 19. Christ on horseback and you and I behind him. Revelation 19, verse 14. Okay, what happens to Christ's promise in John 14? Christ turns out to be a liar. That's a very serious matter. Christ said, I'll take you to myself they say, no, we'll never go to heaven. We'll just be up in the air and then come right back with the Lord Jesus Christ. No. There's a passage, if we had additional time, we'd look at Revelation 3.10, where, where Christ said to the church at Philadelphia, as to all believers, I will keep you from the hour of temptation. This is the hour of temptation, to be kept from not through, not in, but out of, means you're not going through any part of it. So at the very end of our outline, we have the wonderful promises of the Lord's return, the rapture, 
we dare not lose track of that blessed doctrine, is a blessed hope, 1 Thessalonians 2.13, or Titus 2.13, rather. It's a purifying hope, 1 John 3.3. 3. It's a comforting hope, as we just saw in 1 Thessalonians 4.18. And it's a sure hope. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well to take heed, 2 Peter 1.19. So don't lose track of the blessed future for the believer. If we meet the Lord in death, it's going to be instantaneous. An angel takes us there. If we meet the Lord in the rapture, and obviously every day we live, we're one day closer to that glorious event, then uh, we don't even have to taste death. I spoke in a church in Iowa recently where a man came up to me and after word said, Dr. Cobra, uh, the Lord can't come back today. I said, why not? He said, because it's already tomorrow in Australia. <laughs> I'm still trying to think of the theological implications of that statement. But no matter what day it is in Australia, if the Lord came back, we would hear the summons. The question is, are we ready? Has there been a time in our life when we trust in Christ the Savior? And then is our life such that we are not ashamed of his coming? I trust you've trusted in Christ and you're ready for the rapture. Our Father, we thank thee for these moments together in the doctrine of the rapture. We have tried to be serious and specific about the interpretation of these two important passages Seal these truths to our heart and may we rejoice daily in the great salvation we have in and through Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen.